0: Ohio becomes the latest state to adopt permitless carry and an interview with the lawyer responsible for wiping out stun gun males. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast.
1: I made the devil run. I gave him
0: poison just for fun. I had one. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski, also the founder of thereload.com, where you can pick up a membership today if you want to support. The work that we're doing, we're 100% reader funded at this point, uh, which means we wouldn't exist without our members. Uh, And if you do pick up a membership, you'll get exclusive access to dozens of exclusive pieces on all kinds of firearms related content, uh, whether it's exclusive news reports or exclusive analysis pieces that you can't find anywhere else. You'll also get early access to this podcast and the opportunity to appear on the show in one of our member segments, which we actually have this week. Uh, looking forward to to talking to one of our, our members at the end of the show, so make sure you stick around for that. Uh, and uh, you'll be helping deliver informed, independent firearms journalism that, that just there isn't enough of in this world, I think. Anyway, this week, we have a special guest, Alan Beck, who is a lawyer, a firearms uh, Wright's lawyer, who has done a number of notable cases, but for the purpose of our show today, the most notable of which is his litigation on stun guns. And we saw this week Rhode Island's statewide ban on stun guns and tasers struck down, and it was the last total ban, uh, statewide ban on stun guns, uh, out there. This is pretty momentous achievement, and uh, Alan. Why don't you start by telling the audience just a little bit more about yourself?
2: Thank you for having me, Stephen. I am a uh, solo practitioner based out of uh, San Diego, California. Um, I uh, did all these stun gun cases with uh, attorney Stephen Stabilia, who's based out of Mississippi. Um, I've been an attorney for 12 years, and for 11 of those, I've been, uh, at least in part, uh, litigating Second Amendment cases and... I do a lot of uh, just various lawsuits against the government uh, under uh, different um, uh, different issues, according to the Administrative Procedure Act, Freedom of Information Act. But um, uh, the thing I like most is under the Civil Rights Act, I've litigated a lot of cases under something called uh, 42 USC 1983, and that's the uh, vehicle by which we uh, litigated uh, these stun gun cases and uh, uh, the vast majority of other um, firearms cases.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So you've done uh, quite a quite a lot of uh, gun cases and gun rights cases, Second Amendment cases. And, uh, but of course, we want to focus a little bit, at least initially here on your work uh, with stun gun bans, uh, because that actually, at least in my estimation, I think any fair observer's estimation has been the practical legacy to this point of, the Heller decision, the Heller and McDonald decisions, uh, because you its really the stun gun bans are the only policy you've seen systematically dismantled uh, in the wake of those two major Second Amendment decisions. Right. Uh, is that is that fair to say? I mean, how many cases have you done? Yes. How many cases have you done? How many laws have you had uh, overturned at this point?
2: Um, for uh, stun guns, we've um Overturned four statewide laws. Um, that's uh, New Jersey, New York, Hawaii, and Rhode Island. And then we've had several uh, municipal city laws that we've overturned. And those, uh, uh, and some of those were done by uh, litigation. Some of those were just simply after we started winning, uh, we uh, sent out pre. Trial um, demand letters, and so that was at New Orleans and Annapolis. Uh, we and that's in uh, Maryland and uh, you know Louisiana, uh, respectively. We uh, actually filed lawsuits. They just threw in the towel shortly afterwards, and then we had Westminster, Maryland, Tacoma, Washington, and Philadelphia. We uh, sent demand letters. Uh, Look, we're already winning. Um, turn in, uh, here's a letter, we're going to file suit unless you, um, unless you uh, repeal them in those cities. So five total, those three cities, they just got rid of their laws after we uh, uh, sent those demand letters. So four cities, uh, four states and five
0: cities. Right. So this is pretty systematic, the way that you've gone about uh, addressing these bans. And there, there hasn't been any other sort of policy like that. Just wiped off, uh, you know, the, the slate here. I mean, obviously, Heller was directly about Washington D.C.'s handgun ban, and then McDonald was directly about Chicago, Illinois's handgun ban, and those were wiped out. But there really weren't a lot of those types of policies uh, out there. They were really outliers, and so and you just haven't seen that level of uh, systematic change from these landmark Second Amendment rulings, uh, except for these these stun gun cases. So how were you able to have that sort of uh, effect? And I mean, I, what was the mechanism that allowed you to to really have success like this?
2: Well, I, I had uh, initially studied uh, the uh, uh, issue of tasers about, uh, uh, with actually my first case, uh, Baker v. Key Aloha, which was, we filed in 2011, but we just didn't, uh, we decided, and that was a carry case, and we were thinking about doing, a a taser action as well, but this didn't really get a lot of headway. So uh, I'd studied a lot of uh, Eugene Volokh's work, and uh, he is the academic that uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time, um, you know, uh, studying why these things are unconstitutional, why stun gun and taser bans don't make sense. And uh, I also... um, uh, you know, I got quite a bit of advice from, um, attorney, uh, George Lyon, who is an attorney out in, uh, the district of Columbia. He filed a, uh, case, uh, called, um, uh, Crystal V. Wright. And, uh, you know, um, between those, I, I, I know both of them personally and, uh, you know, um, and, uh, I'd worked on it. And then after the Jamie Satano decision, I, um, we went and uh, saw that this was a situation that was ripe for uh, litigation. So, and uh, in the Saitano case, what happened is the Massachusetts Supreme Court decided to um, uphold a ban on stun guns, and they did so uh, based upon the reasoning that um, the uh, that uh, stun guns were not round. At the founding of our country in 1781. Right. That's just completely against uh, Heller and just the wide body of constitutional jurisprudence because, um, you know, I mean, obviously, it, to take that logic, I mean, they didn't have, um, you know, the internet and, uh, you know, even a lot of modern forms of printing, you know, just, uh, um, you know, could arguably be. Um, uh, prohibited if you want to take the reasoning that something had been around in 1791 in order to uh, be a uh, constitution protected under you know the first amendment and you know the supreme court expressly stated in heller that uh, this is not a um, you know just some sort of archaic uh, amendment i mean this is something that uh, has modern relevance and uh, you know there's a specific passage that's uh almost it's directly on point and so the Saitano decision what the Supreme Court did in a two-page curiam opinion that means by the entire court it was unsigned and in a happy unanimous curiam decision the court said uh, that no you got to go redo it you know and look at your reasoning again because uh, it's not dispositive just because something's not around 1791. That's not dispositive, they're not protected by the Second Amendment. So, while and then in a uh, concurrence, that's where, uh, a concurrence is where a judge agrees with the outcome but has his own take on things. Um, Justice Alito um, wrote a concurrence, I, I believe, joined by Justice Thomas, um, where he um, said, uh, yeah, these are absolutely protected. But that but that occurrence wasn't binding upon the court just on the lower courts, just the um, all the, the court's curiam decision, which said, hey, you have to go redo this and uh, redo your um, legal reasoning. And even though in th- the court could have said, hey, um, we're redoing it, we're applying, you know, we're upholding this ban based upon legal reasoning you might agree with. You know, I thought that the fact the Supreme Court had pretty strongly indicated that it believes that uh, electric arms, stun guns and tasers are protected was enough to really take what I'd done back in 2011 and then build upon it significantly in order to uh, start a number of um, lawsuits.
0: Yeah, so that that 2016 Supreme Court opinion, where there was a unanimous opinion, right, uh, that essentially said Massachusetts Supreme Court was wrong, that modern technology is protected under the Second Amendment, uh, that obviously the case dealt directly with stun guns and tasers, um, that really was a catalyst for your efforts. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Really, it enhanced what you were what you were already doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean,
2: Uh, We we wouldn't have died in this most recent push if not for the Supreme Court's um, 2016 opinion. And I think
0: uh, I think the Rhode Island case in particular, the new one uh, that you just won, the judge there was was very critical of of Heller. Right. Uh, He doesn't have uh, a lot of respect for the ruling uh, and, and it's the logic behind it. But but he felt it was necessary to. Abide by it, uh, probably in part because of this 2016 sort of reaffirmation?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think the judge really looking at a Hobson's choice. I mean, he could have found a way to uphold the ruling, but then I would have the option of appealing that up to the First Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals in charge of Rhode Island, and then uh, ultimately up to the US Supreme Court. And, you know, with Saitano, the way it was I and mean, it's a strong indicator that if the matter got to the supreme court on the actual merits and the supreme court was forced to rule um on whether explicitly whether this is constitutional or not the supreme court was going to um overturn the stun gun ban and you know that's that's actually worse you know supreme court ruling is a lot worse than trial court ruling if you don't uh if you're uh, not in favor of the second amendment so i think the judge want to voice displeasure, say that, uh, you know, I think that, uh, this issue was poorly decided, but, um, the Heller was poorly decided, but ultimately, you know, he, uh, want to af- apply precedent, both you know, um, both because I mean, that's simply what the law is. And the fact is ultimately, if you write an opinion, that's not, um, uh, that, uh, does not apply precedent then that you uh have a very strong chance of being reversed on appeal or uh mm-hmm. elsewise
0: right right and so i guess the really interesting thing to me at least about this whole situation with stun guns and and how the 2016 uh tino uh and i always pronounce that wrong i think it's <laughs> I, I apologize to uh to the plaintiff in that case but uh the the 2016 unanimous ruling really plays so much of a role here and gives such an example for how other Second Amendment cases or other areas of Second Amendment law uh, can actually, where the Supreme Court can actually have that long-lasting impact. Because, you know, you've seen, uh, Heller's obviously a landmark decision because it establishes, you know, this individual right to keep and bear arms. But as, you know, as mentioned at the opening of the show, there hasn't been a lot of systematic redoing of the nation's gun laws after Heller to this point. Uh, but here is the model of what that might look like um, if applied to other areas. So you have um, Heller and then you have this second ruling in 2016 that's unanimous. Uh, now, it's probably be hard to get a unanimous ruling like that on more controversial topics of, uh, you know, in these other Second Amendment cases. But you know, it's, it's an example of the Supreme Court sort of re, reasserting its, its initial ruling, uh, telling Massachusetts that its interpretation of Heller was wrong. Uh, and then now you've, you've had a lot of lower courts abide by that in uh, these multiple different cases across the country, even if they don't like the, the uh, Heller decision in the first place. Uh yeah, you know, so do you do you see that what you've done with these stun gun cases as an as as an example for how other areas of Second Amendment case law could go?
2: I I, I think that uh, this is uh, what we're going to see uh, very soon, and probably by June. You know, with the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Bruhn uh, that uh, there's going to be more guidance to the Supreme Court and. You know, my personal view to be honest is it's not going to be as expansive a ruling as uh, we might hope for and what it's going to do is give more guidance to the lower courts and there's going to be a similar uh, situation just like um, where i had to follow up with a number of lawsuits after uh, the Saitano decision there's going to be a lot more work to do but with that guidance that's going to come from the supreme court There's going to be a lot of cases are going to need to be uh, filed, you know, and uh, I think the important thing is we try and figure out where winnable cases are being done within the framework the Supreme Court has given, you know, and push the envelope a little bit, you know, um, but in a manner that the lower courts are going to be um, obligated to uh, uh, follow, you know, in light of uh, what guidance were given in June.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting because I, I know there was some criticism uh, of your effort to go after these stun gun laws initially. Uh, you know, people thought this was a risky move that could backfire. Right. If you if you would lost some of these cases, uh, you know, perhaps it, it would have, uh, you know, set set Second Amendment protections back. So wh- what was it uh, in your calculation that made these cases worth trying in the federal courts?
2: Well, I think there are a number of reasons. I've always felt that you know you have to just simply acknowledge that there is a political component to even the judiciary. You know, I it's there. There's a saying that you know um, uh, if you can't um, expect it to be seen on the front page of the, uh, the papers, you know, or if people would get mad by it, it's there's a good chance Supreme Court's not gonna. Um, uh, rule, you know, in a way that's you know just completely beyond the scope of what's uh, politically pa- palatable, at least to a to a segment of society, you know. Yeah, and with uh, firearms, you know, there's you know there there's a very heated conversation with um, uh, in this country, obviously, you know, and you know that with the stun gun that uh, I I felt that allows the court to rule on what arms are protected by the uh, second amendment without dwelling into the issues of say mass shootings or you know uh headline about gun violence whether they can just simply back up and look at it analytically well this is something that's obviously less dangerous than the handgun issue in heller and it definitely is an arm which can be used for self-defense, and there's simply not a lot of crime associated with it. So we can just simply look at this as a legal issue rather than something that has a lot of um, political uh, baggage associated with it. So because it's, it is a less than lethal weapon, I always felt that uh, this makes for something that uh, allows the courts to simply uh, sort of look at it you know, a little bit more, um, analytically rather than having to uh, think about it in, you know, um, w- with, you know, some sort of political component.
0: Mm, interesting. Know? Yeah. And, yeah. And so, uh, obviously, now, you weren't uh, the, the lawyer in uh 13O, the the, tw- the 2016 case, but, but you know, the, I think your theory there probably goes to one of the reasons why that was a unanimous uh, yeah. decision, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think we should take a look at the optics of, uh, the, and I, I myself do not have, know how to, uh, pronounce that, uh, last name, <laughs> So, uh, uh, so, uh, bear with me. Um, uh, Jamie Saitano was a four foot 11, uh, homeless woman who received, who had an abusive ex-boyfriend who, uh, she had, uh, been, uh, attacked by in the past. A friend of hers gave her a stun gun for the express purpose of defending herself. From her ex-boyfriend, um, she at uh, uh, shortly after receiving it, she at one point brandished the uh, stun, stun gun when the boyfriend, ex-boyfriend came by and he fled. Then shortly thereafter, uh, she was in a uh, parking lot uh, of a grocery store and uh, uh, the police caught her with it. And, you know, it's it, it served, uh, it's served its a purpose there. Uh, no one was harmed and, you know, just the undisputed facts of the case are stun guns are not something that really can be used in the way that, um, they can, you know, they, um, that, uh, maybe is associated with some other weapons, you know, in, in terms of crime. So it went before the Supreme court. I think the optics are really good there. You, you have the exact type of person that needs a weapon. i mean, the, uh, in, uh, just Lito's occurrence, I think he mentions that, uh, the um her domestic abuser was a foot taller than her you know i mean she needed a means of self-defense she was four foot eleven uh, uh, but she needed a means of self-defense in order to protect herself and i mean i think that's it was a very um it was a real it wasn't something that was so you know astroturf I and mean, this was a very real person a real situation and i think that played to the outcome of the decision that uh, all the justice were confronted with a person that was just simply trying to protect themselves, and a nonsensical law was in place that was criminalizing her ability to defend her own life. You know, and um, so yeah, I, abs- I absolutely agree with your statement, Stephen.
0: And so, what's this uh, the the lay of the land now as far as stun gun bans go? Um, you know, obviously now there aren't any more statewide total bans left, but. There are still a couple of cities, and I think Michigan has a some, like a permit requirement to buy uh stun guns, something like that. Where, where are things at now, and what are you looking forward to, uh, you know, past this Rhode Island case?
2: Well, uh, the uh, there are two major cities that still ban stun guns, and uh, that's uh, in uh, New York City. Um, they have an ordinance which uh, prohibits the possession of uh, stun guns. And uh, then also in um, Delaware, in uh, Newcastle County, and the city of Wilmington, which is in Newcastle County, has its own independent ordinance. That they prohibit uh, the uh, possession of uh, tasers and stun guns. Now, um, a uh, friend of mine is uh, R.A. a Lydia case in New York City. So, I mean, that that issue, I at least hope, uh, will shortly be resolved. But uh, Castle County, you know, that, that's something that needs to be uh, looked at, you know, and uh, hopefully I'll um, have an opportunity to um, uh, go there in the near future. Uh, for myself, uh, in terms of what I'm doing with uh, the uh, my uh, Second Amendment litigation, you know, uh, I, I've got a number of cases that uh, are, um, you know, um, in the works right now. I've obviously had the Young case which is a challenge to Hawaii's uh, effective ban on uh, handgun carry or firearm carry in total, which is up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court right now. It's being held pending the outcome of the New York case, the Broom case, which was argued last fall. And uh, I also have a... Um, uh, I, I have a I have a number of unfiled cases which are in the works, so maybe we can talk about uh, after they're filed. Sure. But, uh, yeah.
0: On, uh, but well, specifically I, on stun guns, right? You, you have a couple more that you're considering.
2: Oh, well, uh, I mean, specifically, I'm considering Castle County. Yeah. I, th- okay. th- there's only two places left, major cities. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there might be some small towns or something that I'm unaware well, of. I think it's interesting.
0: Respect. Yeah, no. That, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's not that many left out there. There's there's a couple. No, there's
2: two, there's two major cities. Yeah. Uh,
0: wow. So, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. But it's still interesting to see because, yeah, Sertano was um, at this point, that was six years ago, right? And it's still taken uh, all that time to really uh, to get most of these laws off the books. Um, and I do think that, as you mentioned earlier, that. That is also sort of a uh, gives it uh, gives a guide to how uh, perhaps uh, overturning these may issue gun carry laws how how that might actually go in real life, um, and and so that you know I think that's an interesting point is to another way where this stun gun litigation provides a, an example for for other uh, areas of Second Amendment law that people are probably more Focused on, But, you know, here, here's something you can look at as this is what it might actually take in real life. And, you know, six years and uh, to get through the bulk of these these bands. Uh, and you still have two major cities that, that are left to go even now.
2: Right. And this took me five years uh, to uh, from the time of filing. I mean, uh, almost immediately after the Cytano came out. I began preparing these cases and uh, you know this is that's just simply the nature of federal court is that these things take years you know I mean uh, over five years to get this point and uh, it's um, you know people have to understand I mean outside of you get lucky sometimes they throw the towel right away but for the most part even if the law is on your side you have to spend several years uh, in the federal courthouse, and you have to go through all sorts of procedural stuff. You have to file a lot of paperwork. You have to do discovery. And, I mean, that's just simply the nature of the beast. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's 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 um, to a large degree wishful thinking that just overnight, Supreme Court's got its gavel and things are going to change. You know, there has to be a lot of just time in the trenches, just digging, you know, and trying to push, you know, through the uh, uh, legislative inertia.
0: Right, right, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an important thing for people to realize uh, and, and what you've done provides a you know a good example of, of how it works in real life. Uh, another thing that I'm interested in, because uh, it's one of the things that I would expect to see if the Supreme Court does strike down may issue permitting for gun you know concealed carry in this brewing case uh, out of New York, is not just uh, that you'll have to go after, the the laws that are in the other seven states that have may issue, but also that you'll see this tactic of um, you know incremental changes like you saw in D.C.'s uh, with their gun carry law. You know they had a total ban at one point that got struck down by the federal judge. Then they had uh, they instituted a may issue law and that got struck down too. And now they've gone to a shall issue system, but it's one of the stricter shall issue systems in the country in terms of, uh, you know, the what you actually have to do to get a, a permit. There's the, the training requirements higher than most states. It's more expensive. It takes longer. Uh, and the permits are for a shorter period of time. Have you seen anything like that come out of these uh, stun gun cases where you'll have uh, legislators say, OK, you can buy a stun gun, but we're going to put these. We're going to test the limits of how much we can restrict it well I, I have already seen that
2: in hawaii um so on january 1st of this year in um uh, due to a one of my lawsuits you know stun guns uh, were uh and tasers legalized by the legislature um and uh they put in a uh, you know they put in a new law that has you know background checks um and a number of other restrictions of where you can purchase it. You have to purchase it either while you're on the mainland, uh, the continental United States, or while uh, from a uh, licensed fire, uh, licensed taser dealer. And they're required to give you, uh, uh, you know, at least some s- a s- a safety class. You know, with it's um, honestly more restrictions in most states. Uh, towards uh, handguns but uh, you know they knew that they had to uh, do it and so they went right up to the limit of what they thought they could get away with and right now in the Hawaii legislature they're trying to pass a bill that restricts that puts in a number of sensitive places that's something uh, that's uh, areas where you can't uh, carry
0: for, t- you know? for tasers and, and uh, stun guns correct oh wow
2: and um, you know that's something we're fighting right now. Thankfully, we managed to fight the first draft of the bill, and um, they um, were, um, you know, and we're still, um, we're still fighting, you know, and we're uh, pretty, pretty confident we'll be able to kill the bill to- in total. But uh, you know, it's um, they'd uh, rather not have you uh, carrying government buildings. That's a big sticking point that uh, they're trying to. Um, get us with but you know right now people are carrying government buildings and there's absolutely no issues you know and uh, the police uh, no one's actually complaining it's just simply a nerve of politicians so yeah I mean we're pushing back and this isn't something you'll just win and get to go home and um, you know rest on your laurels I mean I myself and uh some of my clients are very busy in the legislature right now trying to uh, preserve uh uh what uh was accomplished with uh, the hawaii taser litigation um but you know in uh, other jurisdictions uh, you know and also in michigan they have a, a requirement to get a ccw in order to get a um, and go through the ccw training which really just doesn't make sense you know for a, a stun gun and, and that's you know I mean, that's just simply um the nature of it you know i mean there's a uh, lot of people that like to put in um feel-good measures just because it makes them feel better you know and those aren't and especially in the case of stun guns i mean uh, i haven't seen anything that's particularly tied to any sort of real world you know issue it's uh but uh you know at the end of the day though i mean th- they have to let you carry it they have to let you um um especially in hawaii you know they have to let you own it and that's the court rules so you're going to see a similar model uh when the supreme court issues i, I guarantee you that you're going to see a rise in training requirements and good moral character stuff i mean, tr- trying to kick people out uh you know just on small technicalities i mean i the rumor is new york has actually hired many people in um uh, you know, to review people's uh, records and just go through all the uh, checks for new um, permit because they, they know they're going to lose. So they want to be able to scour through people's uh, applications. And, you know, I think uh, I suspect a big part of that you we're going to be trying to find whatever that reason they can, other than not having a uh, quote unquote good cause to try and deny those permits.
0: Yeah, I certainly we don't know exactly what the Supreme Court's going to rule here. And we'll, we're going to be covering that closely at the reload. But I think it's fair to assume that if they do throw out May issue, that this this path that you just talked about here uh, is what um, what gun rights advocates are going to have to deal with in the aftermath of that. But uh, you mentioned Hawaii there a-, a couple times, and one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is your uh, litigation in Hawaii, because you are uh, kind of the only person who's doing Hawaii. Uh, gun rights litigation right now and you've won you've had uh, some very well-known cases you mentioned one uh, young uh, which is probably what if the average person listening would know you for as uh, if if they know who you are from from your litigation in young because uh, you know you got uh, a federal court to Uh, Overturned Hawaii's ban on open carry uh, before the Ninth Circuit reversed it, and now that's pending before the Supreme Court, as you mentioned. Um, But you you also have done a number of uh, cases in Hawaii, which, which frankly, from my view, is one. Hawaii is the most uh, has the strictest gun laws in the country. You know, there's some competition in New York or California or uh, or New Jersey, but. Uh, really, Hawaii is kind of an outlier even beyond those states in a lot of ways. And two doesn't really get a lot of attention. You don't hear a lot of people talk about Hawaii's gun laws even in the gun rights community and you don't see a lot of gun rights you know groups filing suit on you know Hawaiian laws and so what is it in your mind that uh, has made you want to pursue? Cases out of Hawaii, and why do you think it doesn't get the same sort of attention that like cases that California's laws or New Jersey's laws get?
2: Well, um, well, Hawaii is where I'm originally licensed, uh, and uh, you know I have a uh, number of family there, a lot of friends. I mean, I lived out there for uh, quite a while, and uh, you know, I mean, the number one reason why I want to pursue it because no one else wants to. You know, I have friends and family there I, uh, that uh, all have complained. Uh, for a long time about the state of the firearms law and the fact that, you know, the national groups are, you know, they, they, they focus their attention on, uh, you know, some of the more, you know, the, the continental United States. So you know, it's um, to me, I don't believe that an American state should be um, just simply completely out of a national. Um, conversation on a constitutional right I and mean, the constitution applies to the whole united states not just um you know the continental united states and so you know i mean it's uh something that um you know after uh, mcdonald i noticed that everyone in the all the may issue states were having uh ccw challenges and not hawaiis so i decided you know i was just uh uh going to uh, pair up with a friend of mine uh richard holcomb to uh uh, to, uh, you know, give Hawaii, to a degree, representation in the federal court system, you know. And uh, it's, let's see, so, I mean, I've just, uh, that's been about, you know, about 11 years. So, you know, I've just, um, and also a big thing is Hawaii has just such egregious laws, you
0: know. Well, what are what are some of those laws that you've challenged and uh, especially some of the ones you've actually had success on, because you've, you've won okay. some cases, right? Well,
2: Oh, yeah. So I'll, I'll give you guys a couple highlights. I think uh, you guys will enjoy this. Uh, so Hawaii had a uh, ban on green card holders. And it was one of two states post-Heller that had uh, a ban on permanent residents owning firearms. So And there was actually pushback. In 2014, I managed to get that law overturned. Afterwards, um, the uh, city and county Halu put a, a put in a restriction and said, well, okay, so green card holders are allowed to own them, but they have to go to their home country to uh, get clearance in order that they're qualified under Hawaii law to own it. So, my client happens to be from England. So, we had sort of very, um, I thought it was sort of a humorous or ridiculous i think is a better word situation where a um someone that's from england where we fought the revolutionary war from had to get permission from england in order to own a firearm in the united states so that restriction went away after we filed a federal court action we actually went to the ninth circuit prevailed on attorney's fees uh on that because they uh, weren't really uh, too pleased about paying us afterwards but um uh, and then after that was over, there was remaining pushback. Uh, they uh, kept a ban on American Samoans, people specifically who had been born on the island of America Samoa from owning firearms because they were neither an alien nor a citizen. So I had a client. He served the Air National Guard, um, lived in Utah for a time, moved to Hawaii for work, and they said, you can't own a firearm. It was like, how is this possible? I mean, this is a race-based restriction, effectively. You know, uh, people from other countries and people from the United, uh, from the continental United States can own them, uh, but only people that are American Samoan are not allowed to own firearms. And so I went into quarantine. I just, you know, I felt pretty strongly about that. This is basically the last race-based restriction on firearms in the country. And thankfully we won on that issue and we've gotten rid of the ban on American Samoans. Um, uh, two others um, that um, I've won on is um, last year. Um, Hawaii law uh, uh, prohibits you if you've been convicted for a crime of violence. However, there's a very specific that that means something under the law. You know, it's and uh, the uh, both the city and county of Honolulu and the county of Hawaii decided that uh, they were going to go somewhat beyond what that definition is. So I had a guy in. Um, uh, the big island that of Hawaii, the county of Hawaii, who all he did was he yelled at his neighbor. And then he started, his neighbor started yelling at him. Um, the police showed up because of a third neighbor's noise complaint. They just want, you know, them to turn down the noise. Police ended up arresting um, my client uh, for a um, disorderly conduct. And again, all he did was get into an argument with another person over a fence, mind you. And they said, this is a crime of violence. You can never own a gun again. Wow. And, you know, so we filed a federal lawsuit on his behalf. And uh, thankfully, we've gotten, you know, uh, they agreed to an injunction after the court made it very clear that they were not, they didn't have a chance there. And uh, so we prevailed. So they've gotten rid of that policy where anything, any, basically any crime of disorderly conduct is, um, they were just prohibiting people for life you know, including yelling at a person. So we had uh, two other clients in the city and county of Honolulu. Uh, they um, had a, um, a similar situation. They had agreed to tickets. You know, uh, it's called a infraction. You know, it's legally in Hawaii, it's same as getting a speeding ticket. And they agreed to these infractions specifically so they could keep their gun rights, you know, and uh, um, along with another, you know, they pay a $50 ticket, it's done. That's life. Well, the city and county said, no, those are crime and violences. Well, that's legally not a, even a crime under Hawaii law. And they were saying lifetime ban. So uh, one of my clients, he lost his job as a security guard, you know, where he had to carry a firearm. He'd uh, uh, taken a huge financial cut, um, you know, having not switched jobs. And he, you know, another of my clients, he, uh, you know, he lost his firearms rights again, just for a ticket. You know, he was, um, and yeah, you know, we filed a lawsuit over for both of them, and uh, thankfully, the uh, we were able to get uh, another uh, uh, stipulated injunction uh, f- for those two gentlemen. You know, um, and so, didn't and one of your are,
0: didn't one of your most recent cases lead to uh, a new law being considered in in Hawaii as well right now? Yes, um, it's there's. Um, Uh, So right now,
2: in a few years ago, we challenged four different registration issues. Two of them were with the county, two of them with the state. And uh, that's called Yukitake v. Connors. And uh, we were able to settle with the city. And uh, in the um, the permit process in Hawaii is um, very... um, um, uh, is very egregious. You have to. It's basically uh It's a three trips to the police department. Uh, you have to go apply for the permit to acquire, wait 14 days, and uh, then you have to physically come back to pick up the permit, and then go pick up the firearm, then physically come back with the um, firearm to be uh, registered and inspected.
0: Right. So that, that's just to, that's just to own a gun, right? Yeah, that's that's correct. just to that's own that's a handgun. Which obviously is wildly different from, say, Virginia or most other states where you can buy a gun, you pass the federal background check, and you walk out saying
2: that. Yeah, if it's your first gun, you also have to take a uh, training class. Uh, So uh, with the city, we had just a few points. I mean, this is the way they've been doing things since 1934. And why not email the permit to the uh, person who wants to purchase the firearm? Rather than make them wait. Remember, the police stations only open a few hours a day during working hours. So if you want to buy a gun, you have to take the um, um, the firearm, um, you know, take a day off work to go do this firearms process. So, um, you know, I mean, so when they say you have to come to the station to pick up the permit, they're actually, what they're really saying is you need to take at least half a day off work. So we were like, why can't you just email it? And, you know, under threat of a federal lawsuit, they okay, we'll put in on, we'll start emailing it. And we also got them one day a week to extend the hours past the working period. You know, so I think it was used to be four o'clock, I want to say, and now they're open on Wednesdays till uh, 7.45, and they uh, they, they agreed to stay open as late as, you have to be in line by 7.45, and they'll serve you. You know, so sometimes they're there to like nine. Yeah. But, you know, that's what we settled with the city. And that's permanent. That's through settlement. The two things that we um, got uh, against the state is they, um, in order, the part where you have to register the gun at the police station. Um, I have a photo that I submitted to the court where there's just a, this giant line of people just uh, waiting, you know, to uh, register their firearms first thing in the morning. It's, you know, unload. It's frankly, you know, we explained to the court, I mean – anything, it's frankly not all that safe. There was just a woman beaten in front of that same police station and the police weren't able to uh, stop it. Now you've got, you know, 75 people, you know, waiting in line with unloaded firearms. You know, it's... And uh, so what we did there is we got that law enjoined. That was state law. We got it enjoined. They had to go to the register it. Um And um, we... Um, you know, uh, they've replaced that with a online system. Yeah. So now, instead of having to register the firearm, you can put the information into the online system. And that's already in place. That started on January 1st. Yeah. The second part of that was in order to buy a handgun, you have to get the permit to acquire. And once it's issued to you, it's only valid for 10 days. Right. So in light of everything else, I and mean, that's a real big time straight, you're taking lots of time off work right away. Here's the kicker: the rifle permit is only good is valid for a year, and so one of our arguments to the court is, hey, if everything's working just fine for these rifle permits that are a year, um, we um, why can't you do the same with a handgun permit? And so the uh, state uh, appealed both those rulings up to the Ninth Circuit, and we're filing a uh, our answering brief in the next couple of weeks uh, on that. Um, and uh, but. Uh, uh, that law was a state. That part of the ruling was stayed. So that's going up on appeal mm-hmm. uh, right now. But the other the registration that's already in place.
0: Yeah, but I think that all gives a pretty good insight into how much stricter Hawaii's gun laws are than even deep blue states like uh, New Jersey or California. I mean, the, the, those are some pretty mm-hmm. uh, outlier uh, pieces of regulation there in, in Hawaii. And it really is not much in the way of litigation beyond what you're doing and i mean even the uh, the young case the mo- the more famous case that that has gone up through the ninth circuit and is now pending before the supreme court i mean uh, you know you showed in that case that hawaii does technically they have may issue for uh, for open and and uh concealed carry right but but they have the never county, issued a, 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 a single the permit cal- the
2: county of hawaii has never issued a firearms permit.
0: Yeah. So that, I think that gives people an idea of just what is going on in Hawaii and, and why it's so surprising to me, at least, that there isn't more attention paid to it. You know, I, I've written about it myself quite a bit and about the, the suits that you've, you've done. I've interviewed uh, Young himself and and so forth, but you really don't see a lot of attention paid to this and you don't see a lot of activism on the parts of uh, big gun rights groups. So, uh, I mean, if people want to <laughs> help uh, these litigation are there. They're hoping to see something happen. I mean, they really just kind of. you. Yeah,
2: I, I, I mean, something that uh, just, I just this is honestly getting some um, traction in the courts it has been of a great personal satisfaction. I mean, I did the stun gun litigation, actually. Yeah. On $10,000 budget. Um, I, uh, was, you know, uh, so the theory, and that's just paying for costs, the filing fees, the plane yeah. flights out to say New York, it's you know, that's certainly not uh, paying anything. Uh, but I, um, you know, was able to, uh, do that. And, uh, my theory through this, I was going to, uh, either win and be able to pull this off or I was going to lose. And I, uh, run out of uh, money in my budget to, um, be able to, uh, go further. And, uh, you know, it's uh, so I, I was, um, you know, and uh, the same, I think the big thing with uh, uh, with my work out in Hawaii is it's not supported by any of the um, national groups. Thankfully, my good friend Stephen uh has been willing to help me out with it. And uh, another and most recently, uh, Kevin O'Grady has, you know, a couple people basically effectively volunteer their time. You know, and, um,
0: well, you know, that's that's the, I think uh, if people uh, people want to people should pay attention to what's going on in Hawaii. And uh, if they want to know what's happening there with with the gun laws and gun litigation, I mean, they're going to have to pay attention to what you're doing, frankly. So, uh, you know, we'll have to have you back on the podcast again soon in the future to talk a little bit more about some of these cases. Uh, And and what you've been doing, I I know you also have a bump stock case that we aren't able to, (laughs) we don't have time to get to. But you know you're you're doing quite a bit of litigation, so I'm glad you're able to come on talk about the stun gun cases and the how that uh, all is gone, and and then talk about Hawaii and some of these outlier laws that they have and the litigation that you've you've been in against them. So uh, we really appreciate you being here, and uh, and hope to have you back on soon. Hey, thank you for having me, Stephen.
1: All right, now it's time for the weekly news update. I'm here with Reload founder, Steve Gutowski. How are you today, Steve?
0: I'm doing good. How are you, Jake?
1: I'm doing well. i uh, always a contributing to, writer. <laughs> that's right. Always happy to be on the podcast and uh, talking to the, the readers and listeners. Um, you had a big story today, uh, big new development in the permitless carry frontier. Um, a, a new state just became a permitless carry state. Is that right?
0: Yeah, Ohio. Uh, just adopted permitless carry. Governor DeWine signed it into law. Um, and now they're the 23rd state to adopt the policy. And I think we're on the road now to 25 soon. Uh, Georgia and Indiana might be uh, coming up here soon, uh, really within the next month or so, because their legislative sessions are going on as well. But, but yeah, the governor uh, signed the bill. He didn't put out any statement. His office... Uh, told me they didn't have any further comment on it so I don't I guess he's not making it a big uh, making a big deal out of it but obviously a lot of gun rights activists certainly are uh, this is um, <clears throat> the policy you know it's often called constitutional carry by gun rights advocates of course and it allows anyone over the age of 21 who can legally own a gun to legally carry it on them concealed without a permit and now you've seen this become the most popular uh gun carry pr- regulation in the country it's passed shall issue where uh you know where there's still a permit but if you go through the process you uh, are entitled to receive the permit they shall issue it to you they can't you know decide not to if you pass the background check and complete the training that's uh, i believe that's 20 states now because the Permitless carry is chipping away at this, what used to be shall issue states. Uh, and then you had may issue, right, which is the, the policy that's being challenged at the Supreme Court right now out of out of New York, which uh, says that, it, you know, if you, you can go through those same steps of obtaining the required training and passing the background check, but you also have to prove you have a good need to carry a gun, which generally means that in the end it's it's up to the government official as to whether or not they want to issue you a permit they may issue you one but they do not have to and generally that means that most people are not eligible for concealed carry permits in may issue states only people who can uh, prove they have a special need beyond you know regular self-defense so uh we're seeing that that's uh, you know probably going to be wiped out by the Supreme court. We'll see how they rule. Uh, We've talked a lot about this in the past, but, but now you're seeing without any court rulings, permitless carry become more and more popular, right? I mean, you, you actually, Jake, you had a a really good analysis piece about how far things have come, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, as you pointed out, it's, it's a pretty big deal that now permitless carry is the uh, most common uh, carry regime in the country. It surpassed shall issue, as you said. because, you know, just less than 40 years ago, in 1986, that's the year before Florida adopted the shall issue carry regime that kind of spurred the nation to, to gradually over time, fall in line and, and, you know, virtually almost every state minus those few holdouts that retained may issue, um, adopted that policy. But back then there was just one state with permitless carry, and that was Vermont, which has had the policy since its founding. That's why, you know, it used to be kind of called by a nickname Vermont carry. uh, the policy, because that was just the only state that had that, uh, option. And at the time there were only eight shall issue states. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't particularly common to have a pretty liberal carry regime. And now, you know, the year 2022, you've got 23 states that have permitless carry. Uh, I think you said 20, either 19 or 20 shall issue. And those remaining eight may issue states that could very well at any moment when the Supreme court rules, um, could become shall issue so it's a it's been a big transition in, in just a generation
0: yeah yeah and even uh even dc now is sh- shall issue right uh, after their their first their entire their total ban on concealed carry was struck down by a federal judge and then later on their their may issue law was also struck down just a couple of years later and so now they're shall issue uh i think you're poised to see shall issue be the the floor across the country, and then permitless carry will probably be the preferred policy of every red state, I would say, you know, every right. state that has a triple red, you know, the the House, the Senate, and the governor, all controlled by Republicans. It's hard to imagine a future where all of those states don't eventually move to permitless carry, and probably within the next year or two, I mean, there's only a couple holdouts left, really, I think sure. that's what... Like, uh, you know, well, there's, there's Georgia and Indiana, which are considering it, uh, right now and might have it in, in law by the end of this month or maybe next month. Uh, then you've got Florida, which, uh, you've had Ron DeSantis, the governor there expressed support for it. Uh, although I think it's, it hasn't made any significant progress in the legislature this year, yeah. but, um, And then you have south carolina i think nebraska and so you know you're even if those states don't get to it this year it's going to become increasingly difficult to avoid that that pressure if you're the last red state that doesn't have permitless carry right
1: yeah i think that's exactly right and i think ohio in this case is actually a pretty big indicator for that kind of trend because as you said ohio is a triple red state but it's not super red you know it's still It elects Democrats, and for a long time, it was considered a swing state. And Governor Mike DeWine, while he did sign the bill, has kind of been uh, straddling the fence on the gun issue in the past. You know, he's voiced support for some gun control policies in the past, especially after that Dayton mass shooting a couple years ago. Um, He was open to expanding background checks um, and that sort of thing. So the fact that such a policy can pass in a state like that, which is now the second most populous state. Uh, behind Texas to have this policy, I think it's a it's a big deal, a big indicator, and I think it will cause other red states to kind of fall in line because they don't have the same impediments that a state like Ohio does.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it's interesting too because uh, you know the policy doesn't poll that well. I think you you see uh, limited right. support for this when when you get uh, polling questions that I ask about it. Uh, but sure. it's one of those issues where it seems perhaps. Uh, the people who do care about it are very passionate about it and the people who uh, might say they don't prefer it on a you know a a, poli- a, pol- a polling question uh, just aren't that interested or aren't that concerned about it, unless it leads to like observable negative outcomes that you know can reasonably be blamed on the policy which i don't think we've really seen that yet I, i've never s- i haven't seen a you know a, a politician get recalled because they Voted for permitless carry, anymore, sure. Right, like that's not something that's really happened. I don't even think you've seen like a concerted effort to do something like that. Obviously, right. you have a lot of people who who are organized against these policies. The gun control groups universally uh, are opposed to permitless carry. Um, you had, uh, I believe, for Ohio, you had uh, this is Christine Woodworth, who's a a volunteer for the Ohio chapter of Moms Demand Action. This was put out by, uh, you know, Moms Demand Action was part of every town. Um, she said, you know, today Governor Dewine signed sided with the gun lobby over public safety, over the safety of Ohio's law enforcement officers who work every day to protect our community. Our state has some of the weakest gun laws in the country, and today we lost one of the last foundational public safety measures on the books for no reason other than to satisfy the gun lobby. So that that's how you'll hear them talk. About this policy, but uh, I don't know that that's uh, led to any sort of significant action against those who've voted in favor of it. Now, to be fair, this has been an extremely quick rise to prominence for p- Permilis Carey, as your piece uh, laid out. So maybe the backlash will come at some point if people, uh, you know, associate rising you know, murder rates with these policies. But uh, to this point, that that certainly hasn't happened. And I'm not sure uh, it's going to. Right. Right. Well,
1: yeah. You know, it's possible, but I, I'm with you. I'm not sure it's going to happen. Um, I think a good example of that is a state like Vermont, who has had it since its founding. But it's also been a deep blue state for, you know, yeah. for almost forever now. Um, and you haven't seen any effort to get rid of that policy there. Um, and likewise, any of the other states that have adopted permitless carry, which obviously are much more recent in the grand scheme of things, but there hasn't mm-hmm. been any repeal of the policy in any state that has passed it. So while there is upfront opposition from you know, gun control groups, sometimes law enforcement groups, you, you never really see the permit, uh, the permitless carry policy get repealed, so. That's a great point. Uh, I don't know if it'll happen in the future.
0: <clears throat> That's a very good point. It hasn't, you haven't seen any states move from permitless in the other direction ever, so. Right. We'll keep an eye on this and and see where it ends up, of course, uh, over at the Reload. So uh, make sure you guys are subscribed to our newsletter or become a member today so you can read the analysis that Jake wrote. Um, But we're actually going to go over and talk to a member now uh, in one of our member segments, one of my favorite kinds of segments that we do for the podcast. So we're going to head on over there uh, right now. All right. I'm here with. Reload member, Nathan Gorenstein, who's, uh, we're doing another member segment, one of my favorite segments, uh, Nathan, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background about, uh, you know, who you are and and how you got into firearms?
3: Uh, well, my career was spent as a newspaper reporter and editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Mm. which I left about, uh, 2012 to write books, uh. And my uh, second book uh, is a biography, social history of John Moses Browning and his times. Ooh. And I chose that because I realized um, there had never been a serious biography of his impact on the world. I got into it. I got into it in a roundabout way. I was actually looking into single action army revolvers uh, for another whole project, and so I went down an internet rabbit hole, and I ended up at John Browning, uh, and I thought it hasn't been a book, I should write one. Uh, But in the meantime, I got into shooting. I've always been mechanically inclined. I used to do fixed cars when I was a kid, and I still built some furniture and uh, rebuilt a boat or two. And and so when firearms came along, it was an interesting mechanical uh, concept that I hadn't dealt with before. And that was the thing that initially attracted me to a book topic. But I got into guns and I started shooting and um, I actually wrote a piece for the Inquirer after I had left about why gun control was doomed to failure. And I said, the secret that folks don't know is that shooting guns is an enjoyable sport. Right. It's fun. And, and it's a challenge. I've certainly found it to be that way. The, the mental, I mean, I shoot USPSA and SEAL challenge, uh, And uh, do a little rifle. And, you know, the the thing that's most interesting to me uh, in competitive terms, because it's the competition situation that makes it that makes the challenge is it's all in your head. It's all being able to do a lot of things very linearly in a straight line very quickly. Which is also very unlike writing a book, uh, <laughs> as, as you probably know from writing off yes. which is a sort of a, a circular thing, right?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> you know,
3: you, you know what you know, and you try and figure out how to do it. But with you know, doing a, a, a stage in, a, in a, a firearm competition, it's you have to think things, you have to do things in a very particular order, repeatedly, very quickly, and that was a real mental challenge for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's shared by a lot of a lot of people, but I want to. Zero in for a second on the mechanical aspect, because I think that's something sure. that is uh, undercovered or un, you know not talked about a lot when, you, when it comes to why firearms are popular with people. Uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of reasons that all kinds of different people get into firearms. But one of them is this is the mechanical aspect. And that's something that I also uh, have found extremely interesting in my time. I mean, this this AR behind me here for everyone watching on YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I built that AR. I built I build a number of ARs. You know, even just the regular uh, maintenance of a gun requires some sort of mechanical interaction with it and understanding how it works and being able to take it apart to clean it and, and lube it. But, uh, you know, I think that's something that is is really not talked about at all, especially outside of the gunning community as to why hmm. this is captivating to a lot of people.
3: I th- I think it's a big reason why, why people get into it, uh, you know. It's, it's the, um, you know, the little machines and people, civilization is based on machines. And um, when I um, first, I purchased a single action army from uh, Uberto, or Bertie, or And I, first thing I did was take it apart. And as I got into Browning's history, I became fascinated about how these machines worked and why they were different from other Uh, gun manufacturers. And I had always liked working with my hands. So I started buying firearms in part to learn how they worked. And I've ended up making, I did a couple of 80% 1911s and I've done a a 2011 that I shoot with now. Uh, I even actually fit the barrel and it's accurate. Damn. Um, (laughs) uh, And so all that gave me an understanding for how these things work and appreciation for Browning's genius. But it's, you know, why is it similar to the attraction that woodworking, for example, has for me? I think in part because it's very finite. If you make a piece of furniture, you know whether all the joints fit. You know whether the finish is good. There's no ifs ands, or buts, it's there. And the same thing with, with building a firearm or shooting a firearm or working on a firearm or reloading ammunition. You know, there's a little gray area sometimes with ammunition, but <laughs> but whether a firearm works or not is is pretty clear. You know, it does or it doesn't, and if it doesn't, uh, there's for specific things you look at to try and figure out why. And it's it's a very it's an inventive and it's a real. It's again, it's um, it's uh, it involves the mechanical skills, and humans have always been into the mechanical skills. And there's also probably the you know the the challenge of doing something that candidly is a a bit dangerous uh you have to be careful Mm -hmm. and you have to pay attention and i guess mastering that is also a thing that attracts people to firearms too
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense uh you know for me it's very similar to working on my car you know working on my jeep it's it's the same sort of uh, enjoyment that I get out of that, or frustration, uh, you know, however, depending on how the project goes. I, su- I suppose, but but, um, <laughs> yes. uh, but yeah, Br- Browning in particular is such an interesting figure, especially to people who are you know into the hobby of collecting firearms, um, because he's he was so prolific and so influential in the course of American gun design, you know, in the modern era. Like uh, you know, I mean, I got one of his guns right here. This is uh, a 1911, right? Everybody knows the 1911 right. in the gun community, um, even outside of the gun community. This was the sidearm for the army for 80 years or, or so. And and in fact, even though Browning was doing a, most of his important work at the sort of the turn of the the 20th century, a lot of his gun designs are still popular, and some are still employed in. The military today, the, the yeah. uh 50 caliber machine gun is still sure. used.
3: Yeah. Well, the, the modern handgun is based on, on Browning's work. Um, the book was a lot of fun to do. And, and I was lucky because his uh, last surviving grandson, Bruce Browning, who has unfortunately since passed away, uh, wanted a book done at the same time that I wanted a book. So I ended up in Utah one day and uh, Bruce was kind enough uh, to sit with me for two mornings and do interviews he's he was in his 90s his physically he was struggling but mentally he was great and he was really very helpful in in telling me some family information and getting the access that his sister had who was also helpful judy uh, browning jones to 40 boxes of family records that no one had seen in century uh and that was crucial because it gave me a lot of data and information that that was previously unknown and changed a lot of the stories about Browning that were partially folklore, partially accurate. And, and you give us, the other thing, can you give us an example um, which, of one? Yeah, the biggest thing is probably how he split up with Winchester. You know, the famous story of Winchester is that uh, they wouldn't pay him royalty. So he took his shotgun and Hopped a boat to France. I'm talking to Belgium to FN. It's not quite what happened. He he had actually um, already was working with FN on his pistols. He had been over there a number of times. It wasn't his first trip. He had he had uh, uh, told FN that they could have this automatic shotgun he was making. And but most importantly, what I found was a contract for royalty signed by. Colt and signed by the Browning. So that whole story that they wouldn't pay him royalties wasn't the case. Mm. What had happened was that he and Bennett, who was the guy that ran Colt, sort of had a falling out. Matt wasn't a fan of him. Bennett wasn't a fan of Matt, John's brother. And when uh, Bennett, for a variety of reasons, didn't want to make what became the Auto-5, Browning angrily said, well, I'm going to force his hand I'm going to go in and ask more money than he'll ever pay me. And then he'll say no, and I'll take the gun and I'll bring it to FN. And this is in a manuscript written by his son that has never been published before, never seen before, wow. this account. Uh, and this was one of the documents that was in the 40 boxes that Bruce Browning gave me. I have a copy of the royalty contract from 1899, uh, and, and I have this manuscript by uh, his son, that was written in this, late in his son's life in the 1950s, um, so it's a whole different story. And there's even a joke at the end. You know, they walk out of Bennett's office, and and Matt never gets a word in edgewise. It's a, sort of this taciturn conversation between Bennett and Browning. Browning gets his prize. Bennett says no. Then Browning says, "Okay, we'll leave." And and Matt says, I never got a word in. And met, and and Browning says says, Well, you can go back. And he starts laughing. <laughs> the brother does. And I don't want to go back. Uh and and he makes a comment that summarizes sort of the problem with the relationship, which is that, oh, he just thinks we're a bunch of hick country boys, mountain men from out west. And in that comment, you sort of get a sense of, whoa, this was the whole underlying the relationship. Here was Bennett, who was this Yale graduate. A Prince Yale graduate who had been an officer in the civil war uh, and and here are these two guys from Utah who actually had to teach themselves how to speak correct English when they started going east. They used to uh, another family story uh, they they bought a grammar grammar book and on the train rides east they would teach each other how to speak correctly, how to spell because they had left school Browning I think he left when he was twelve or thirteen uh and and so they were obviously very smart guys yeah. and and they they taught themselves, but they always had this sort of obviously a rocky relationship with the Winchester people
0: that's fascinating i mean uh it, it you know it's incredible what what he was able to accomplish obviously in his lifetime of, of yeah. design and how much influence he had that,
3: you know the Winchester gave away the pistols the colt, and Bennett got a lot of um um Agree from that, from um, his dealers, because obviously the pistols were very success. Bennett was a very conservative guy, and and sort of wanted to do shotguns.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I I mean, um, I bet there's a lot. <laughs> it sounds like there's a, quite a lot of uh, undiscovered history in this in this book uh, that people there is, if I would probably be so interested told, in, yeah, in reading. I'll
3: hold it up. You yeah, can see it. Uh, it's the guns of John Moses Browning. Uh, it's, you can get an audible or Kindle or paper or not paper yet. It's still a hardcover.
0: Okay. So that uh, people can go to Amazon if they, if they want to check out yep. the, uh, yep. the book. Sure. Can. And I, you know, Amazon audible, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm particularly interested in it. Honestly, so I think I'll probably read it as well. Uh, but, uh, so how, how did you become a reload member? Cause this is, this is not an ad or anything. Yeah, you know, it's just happens to be no, something no. that you do well, as, you know, and you're a reload member.
3: Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm interested in firearms news, and there's uh, a lot of sites, some better than others, some political, some not political. But I was looking, but not sort of, um, I mean, I'm an ex newspaper person, so I'm looking for something that has a, sort of that, that ethic. Yes, we believe this to be true, and we've gone back to the sources. And, and I was looking, for, I don't remember the article, but I came across something you wrote. And I said, "Huh, this is what I've been looking for. You know, someone who can cover the business and the industry, and 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 do it in a in a sort of a, a neutral, objective, or fact based ma- ma- manner." Um, and which is why I, you know, which is why I joined up. Thank you. Yep. So, yeah. congratulations for doing it. It's a tough thing you do. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, to try and start not easy. To try and start a media company is not is not a. Is not the road to riches.
0: No, certainly not. Uh, although, thankfully, it has gotten the barrier of entry, I think, has gotten lower, which is why something like The Reload can exist these days. But, yeah. but hey, uh, we appreciate you coming on and, and talking a little much. bit about your background and, and what you're up to. And I think if people uh, are like what they heard about the book, they should go and check it out. I mean, John Moses Browning, he's a legendary figure in, in American gun history, for sure.
3: Yeah. It's a great read too, if I can say in all modesty. It's 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 not a it's not a uh, it's, it's a easy. It's a quick book to read and very entertaining. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's 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 it, people. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's fine. No, I was going to say those are the reviews on Amazon, so you can read those, and and it's not just my opinion.
0: There you go. And maybe we'll do an excerpt for the Reload uh, if that makes yeah, sense, because sure. I think I'm glad to I think uh, I mm-hmm. think people at the Reload would be interested in this. John Moses Browning is a fascinating figure, and like you said, there's not. I, I As much uh, out there on him as there probably should be. So mm-hmm. I think our, I think our okay. readers would be thanks interested. Thanks for the interview. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, that's it for this week's episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Uh, if you are interested in becoming a member yourself, you can head on over to thereload.com. You can, we got monthly memberships, yearly memberships, we even got a lifetime membership if you want to uh, take the extra step to to help support the publication, which is completely member funded. And um, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive pieces of reporting and analysis that you can't find literally anywhere else. And you'll also have the opportunity to get this podcast a day early and come on the show if you want to. So uh, until next week, we'll talk to you guys later.